Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller, and my guest today is... Saskia Ritterborn, and I work at the School of Journalism and Communication at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. And Saskia, it's a long time since we've seen one another. That's right. Seven, eight, nine years, perhaps. But it's Mm -hmm. always wonderful to be able to read your work and occasionally to stay in touch. And I really appreciate your spending time with us today. And the question I wanted to begin with it was to ask you what is currently dynamizing, influencing, interesting, preoccupying you. What are the things mm-hmm. that are driving you, retarding you, worrying you? Right. Well, thank you, Toby, first of all, for the invitation here to the podcast. And hello to all the listeners. Um, well, I mean, in terms of dynamizing, I would say... Um, This is still, professionally speaking, the research that I've been doing for many, many years, uh, which is technology and migration. Um, And just as a little bit of an explanation, um, when I say technology, I actually come from it from a communication background. And um, I was not trained as a media researcher per se, but more in the human communication um, direction, um, in communication philosophy, in culture and communication. And um, only later came to study technology in the context of mobility and um, and migration. And um, yeah, that has kept me basically um, busy and interested for all these years as a professor, um, because I've been doing also research um, in, um, in East Asia, in Europe and in the United States. And um, that, especially the ethnographic part, has really kept me there. And I always tell my students that this is something, you know, listening to these, um, you know, stories, human and now digital, and um, and understanding the world in that way has always been invigorating for me. And, um, yeah, so that, that is the first part. Um, also, um, I just came back from a year of sabbatical, <laughs> which has been also a wonderful um, time of um, reflecting and thinking. And um, we spent it at the, or I spent it at the London School of Economics. And um, so we were in London for a time and then kind of also shuttled back and forth um, later between London and then Germany. And so just meeting some new people and getting new ideas, um, talking with colleagues um, was, a, was a good time and refreshed me before coming back to Hong Kong. That's wonderful. And that's what those things should be. One wonders whether in 30 years there will be sabbaticals. Exactly. Yes. Unfortunately. But uh, when they work in an ideal manner, then I think they can be, as you say, refreshing and invigorating. And and that's great. And your work on immigration, Saskia, covers the three places you've spoken about and also where you've lived. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So you've had multiple experiences as a migrant yourself. And presumably technology has become an increasingly important part of that in terms of not only your research, but maintaining contact with other scholars, with family, with friends and so on. Exactly, yes. And it actually took me a while to reflect on my own biography and understand where my interest in migration is coming from. But um, I, uh, I was born in former East Germany, which is really a country that doesn't exist anymore, legally speaking. And um, through that, then, um, you know, when I started my education journey, so to speak, in West Germany, and then moved to the US for the PhD, um, that is also, uh, that was a time when I became really interested in transnational migration in particular. And I, I started working um, on understanding the, first of all, communication practices that people engage with to create collective identities after transnational moves. So um, I worked with um, people from Arabic speaking countries in the US, Arab Americans, to understand what um, and how they established themselves as communities in the United States, especially after this very difficult time of 9-11. And then um, I, later on, I also came to um, 
study more technology because that was happening at the time, right? So early on in 2010, um, I started research in Germany in um, the uh, refugee accommodations um, to understand how you know, displaced people are using early technology in terms of digital technologies and then also social media platforms to engage transnationally, to um, engage in, in political protest and, um, and also in particular how women use technologies to um, become more visible or less visible or actually visible on their own terms. So that was quite exciting for me to really see how young women um, in these very difficult and crowded refugee accommodations, um, how they borrowed computers and phones from their brothers, for instance, um, to get familiar with technology um, and um, how they used it to prepare for schools, to, to, to learn how to create PowerPoint slides, for instance, right? So it's a really everyday educational things um, and uh, because there was always a, they were always afraid going to these public internet cafes. I know it's a concept from the 90s. But that was, <laughs> um, yes, quite popular because they felt harassed, actually harassed, psychologically abused. And so they created their own spaces um, to engage with this technology. And we see this basically until now. Um, at the moment, I'm doing a project on Web3 and crypto gaming in the Philippines. And so um, basically, you know, started from trying to understand the technology practices, you know, on the ground of, of migrants, predominantly displaced people, to then also now actually go to um, understanding you know, how people in in context of migration, like the Philippines are one of the largest out-migration countries, right? Um, uh, how, how people there engage with next generation technologies. And so in this crypto gaming project, it was quite interesting to see um, also that uh, women used it to gain a crypto skills, um, you know, to learn about how to open a digital wallet and also speak out against um, sexual harassment online. I mean, it's a very male-dominated sphere, the gaming, digital gaming sphere. So that was also uh, quite um, interesting to see. Yeah. Now, I wanted to take you back, back, back. I don't know whether you were old enough to be a young pioneer. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. I think I was like uh, the last... Uh, yeah, the last the cohort last... of the young pioneers. <laughs> One of my favorite analytic philosophers was a young pioneer, actually. Um, but back, back, back much earlier, because uh, to me, Germany has the most interesting migration history in the modern era. Uh, if I think back to the period from the 1880s to the 1920s, people were moving to the Americas. They were going to Argentina. They were going to the United States for economic reasons. And then, you know, during National Socialism and before it, fleeing the country. Then after the war, just trying, you know, endless millions of displaced people without, in a sense, a nominated home. Um, of course, the massive shift with reunification. But also mm -hmm. after the war, guest workers coming in from Turkey and elsewhere and now, of course, this policy under Merkel of being open to millions of refugees in many cases. So it's an mm -hmm. extraordinary arc. I may have got some details wrong there, but it seems to me there is this long, complex history of leaving and arriving. And it, as in much of Europe, and I can see it here in Spain, this is currently leading or it is being manipulated by the far right to claim that there is a, a history of the nation that is not about migration, whereas this is, in fact, untrue. Mm -hmm. So I wondered mm -hmm. if you could a comment on my potted amateur history of migration mm -hmm. in Germany, but also perhaps tell us a little bit about this extraordinary backlash that we're seeing as I say, not only in Germany, it's in Britain, it's in France, it's in Italy, and it's here. 
and Denmark and Sweden. Absolutely, yeah. Yes, and and you're absolutely right. I mean, I see the same thing in Germany with the rise of the of the of the right, especially the AFD, which is the alternative for Germany party that has gained quite a lot of ground, and that is very worrisome. It worries me and my family a lot, actually. Um, that this is happening in this country um, uh, with with the history of the Holocaust and and um, yeah, so um, but yes, you're absolutely right um, in your observations and also because as you said, Germany has this this long like any country, right? I mean, there is no pure pure country yeah. and and pure national ethnic group and so on. So. Um, Yes, uh, it it has always been this country where people came and, and left, and um, especially this large out migration to the United States, um, but also other European countries. Um, and then, especially after World War Two, um, you know, the people coming in from uh, the other form, you know, what was formerly German territories in what is now Poland and um, the Czech Republic and Slovakia. Um, and uh, a part of my family is, is uh, basically, they came as refugees to Germany, German-speaking refugees, right, and, um, and settled there. And uh, even in this generation now, I mean, people are still remembering that history of what it meant to be a refugee. Um, my great-grandmother, in, they lived in a tiny village, um, and they received actually after 1945 when these huge refugee tracks were coming from the east. Um, they housed many refugees, also children who had lost their parents. And so this history is, is still alive. And I think... Um, what we saw under Mer- Merkel in, in, in 2015, this, um, you know, culture of, of welcome, um, which I actually, um, it made me very, very happy. I mean, this is a, you know, not even the right word for that, to see yeah. that this yeah. can happen in Germany after, you know, refugee shelters burned in the 1990s. Um, so, uh there there was this welcoming and uh, that has shifted now again and i think we've seen that through history that uh, when you look at uh, media research for instance um in europe there's always this this uh, binary trope between the refugee or the asylum seeker displaced person and migrant in general as a threat or as an opportunity and i think uh, we are now again in this in this time of um threat um, at the same time, also, how uh, politicians tell us, right, we need migration because, yes, I mean, population size is shrinking, um, right? And so we have that all over the world. So out of a sudden, again, this idea of the migrant, that includes now um, displaced people as uh, basically the an economic um, alleviation of, uh, you know, the German economy. And, you know, so again... It's, it's this instrumentalization of the migrant that, that you can see a lot. And not only there, because also in Hong Kong, um, after the protests in, in, in 2019 and then these rather strict COVID restrictions, uh, many people left the city. So Hong Kong has a labor shortage. Um, Hong Kong population um, size is shrinking. And the government um, for the past several years are trying very hard to attract new migrants through special migrant talent schemes. So here, actually, they are quite clear that they are not very keen on, um, you know, attracting displaced persons. Hong Kong has one of the lowest refugee recognition rates in the world. Um, But what they want is the highly qualified and especially the high earners. And uh, so... Uh, they have been quite, you know, I think successful so far. Um, I just looked the, uh, up the uh, the numbers recently. In the first nine months of 2023, Hong Kong um, gave out 100,000 work visas. And um, also, you know, and that actually, you know, uh, in comparison to the fact that in 2021 to 2022, around 130,000 people, um, well, residents, left the city. So you see there's mm-hmm. a lot going on and most visas are given also out to uh, talent from mainland China and um, also from overseas universities. So again, this idea of migration as this, um, you know, new influx and, and a new energy uh, to a place is very apparent here. And in that regard, 
Um, and I just wrote to this in an article that just came out 2024. Um, I wrote about knowledge migration and the politics of innovation, how actually migrants themselves, um, especially the highly skilled ones, um, high earners, um, they become implicit somewhat in national politics and the politics of a place. And I think it will be interesting to have more research on that because in our field, media and com, the most of the research is about displaced populations. If and, you think about, uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Um, yeah, just one more sentence. And I would like to see more research actually on knowledge migration and um, how they actually are uh, moving to different places and change, um, you know, the politics, the economy and the culture of a place. Um, so, yeah. But also may have influence back home. I'm thinking of the high technology Indian migrants to Silicon Valley who've been important in funding Hindutva and the Hindu far right. That's the other aspect in this. One of the interesting things that happens here is that as you're implying, economists basically have shown that immigration is good for countries. Uh, wealthy countries have problems with the so-called substitution rate. People aren't having as many babies. They have populations that are living for longer and need help and they don't have enough people coming through in middle age and a bit younger who want to stay there and who can contribute in the ways you've suggested. One of the other aspects that I've seen, and this is very true in Britain and I think true in Germany, is that the working class is blamed for being anti-migrant and in the German case it's former East Germans who were blamed for this often. I wonder if you could comment on that, this, uh, the notion that it is an anti-globalization ethos amongst the working mm -hmm. class, the proletariat or the former proletariat that is dynamizing this, but also perhaps the role of media play in egging yeah. on anti-migrant sentiment. Yeah, Absolutely. And I think now that we have the legacy media and social media, I mean, that is like common knowledge by now, but a lot of younger people are actually getting their news mostly from social media and uh, are moving in these filter bubbles. I mean, even here in my class, when I asked, um, you know, these young MA students where they get their news from, uh, most people get it from WeChat and, um, you know, most students from yeah. across the border. So there's not much reading of other media and the same is true for other, you know, students, I guess, in the US and in, in, in Europe and Australia as well. So um, that is one of the challenges that, of course, um, these these uh, stories um, about migration have become very fragmented and it depends where you go. And even highly educated people, I know they don't read certain um, legacy media anymore, including the New York Times, um, because they say it's it's just going into one direction and it doesn't give the full story anymore, which is also quite interesting. Um, so, uh, yes, and I think what, what you mentioned uh, with working class, um, I think there's one social group gets pitched against the other. This is also something that have, we have seen, I think, all over the world for, for many decades. And, um, and I think there is also this... Um, you know, that people who don't make a lot of money, whether they are working class or, I mean, we see actually the middle class is getting poorer all over the world, also in Europe, right? So it's not just the world, the working class, um, you know, in the traditional sense anymore, I guess, um, who is getting concerned. I mean, I also see that in, in, in Germany and, um, and in the US and everywhere else, um, where on the one hand, there is something real there in terms of inflation, post-COVID, people losing their jobs or out of a sudden um, not being able to pay their rent anymore. Um, so they, of course, um, are getting concerned and scared for their children, um, but also for themselves. And then, I mean, the easiest blame is the migrant, obviously. Um, so, and then, of course, the media pitches one against the other. This is uh, the other idea, right? So in, in Germany, the common story so far, there was a lot of solidarity with Ukrainian refugees, um, and they got pretty easy access to the uh, employment sector, which was, of course, unfair against other refugees who have been waiting and been in the queue for, like, so many years. Again, one displaced group pitched against another almost, um, 
And uh, now politics are changing, basically, that Germany now says Ukrainians have to go even faster into the, the labor market. And um, that actually, so far from what I know, has not created a lot of concern um, in terms of other working people, because there is just not many people left in the labor force, so to speak. I mean, in Britain, since Brexit, as you know, their agricultural sector is dying, both because of denied access being denied, but also because the British don't like working hard, especially the English. And so they were utterly dependent on Rumanian and other labor in order for apples and pears and potatoes to be harvested. And when it comes to the National Health Service, dependent on West African and South Asian skilled labor, Um, Mm -hmm. And when it comes to all kinds of other skilled artisanal areas dependent on Polish labor, and suddenly they don't have this, but the bigotry against those groups remains high, but not against Ukrainians, as far as I can see. And I'm still puzzled by the role of the media in this. I take your point about these different forms of knowledge, right? I've been very struck since moving here from the US and and Mexico and teaching young people, it's obviously not a random sample, but but they're from different class backgrounds. So in Mexico, I had indigenous working class. In the United States, super elite. And now here in Spain, lower middle class uh, to working class. And in the United States, uh, you know, in, in Mexico, they're watching Deutsche Welle in Spanish. Mm-hmm. They're watching France Farcatra in Spanish. They're watching BBC Mundo. They're incredibly well informed. In the United States, they don't know shit from China. No. And the only things they look at are TikTok and Instagram. And that's yeah. where they get whatever passes for news. But they're very able at writing essays and passing exams and doing what's required. Here, mm-hmm. nobody has ever read a newspaper. Nobody mm-hmm. has ever watched television news. But unlike in the US, in addition to TikTok being their news source, they go to Twitter. Twitter is really oh. important for young people here in a way that it just isn't anymore in many countries, as far as I can tell. Again, it's not a random sample, but we're talking about, you know, when I talk about these people, we're talking about a total of several hundred. And so mm-hmm. I'm interested in where, who is pushing the anti-immigrant sentiment whether it's on WeChat or TikTok. Because if you watch Deutsche Welle, it's basically left liberal, right? Mm. Same with France Varcatra. This is same with BBC Mundo. These mm. things are pushing the sort of, not, e- not even left really, but liberal line in favor of human rights and in favor of economic rationality. Yeah, I think pretty much. Mm-hmm. So where, who is, who is impelling? this bigotry right i mean again you know if i i I just speak as my like can give you some general kind of comments because i have not done research on that and i think my colleagues um, who study hate speech and conspiracy theories i think they might have much better answers to that but i think that is part of the picture right um with the advent of of you know social media and everybody having a mobile phone more or less with even better cameras these days something is happening and um it gets mediatized immediately And so, um, you know, on the one hand, you have citizen journalists who are really serious about what they report. On the other hand, you have other citizens who basically, um, you know, just record uh, random incidents or observations in the streets added by deepfakes sometimes. Um, and then uh, put out these these theories, conspiracy theories, and and you know based on uh, yeah their idea of what constitutes a fact. And then I think this clickbait and and the more sensationalized it is in this in this attention economy, um, the more clicks you get. And I think that fuels a lot of it um, also on on TikTok. And once you are in the hands of the algorithm, basically, it's really difficult to get out if you don't make a conscious effort, right? <laughs> I'd rather so... be in the young pioneers. But, <laughs> Prof, can, can I um, go back to a couple of things that you've already mentioned? Uh, the first of them is gender. Uh, you mm. were describing a situation in which I think on the one hand, mobile technologies of communication are assisting young migrant women. On the other hand, 
they can also be made very vulnerable. Absolutely. Uh, for example, you mentioned harassment in internet cafes and so on. Could you speak a little bit more about that very important topic? Yes, um, and I think that has for, and again, these are displaced populations I've worked with, and they are very vulnerable in many other aspects, right? Um, sure. And so um, legally, right, they are at some point they were not even allowed to buy SIM cards. So, you know, and uh, you have to have, you know, brothers, uncles, whatever, to give you even a mobile phone early on. Um, so there was always this issue of being very kind of careful about what you say or not. At the same time, and this is counterintuitive, some of the other studies I did later on, on, um, on privacy, for instance, on social media, that was also very interesting because uh, in terms of gender and otherwise, because this idea of data privacy, I mean, that was a large research or has been around for, for a while, but I became interested in what does privacy, social media privacy, data privacy mean for displaced people. And so in Hong Kong, um, I did this study and that was quite interesting because um, you could see that actually a lot of the um, people still in the asylum process um, would post pictures of themselves on social media, like smiling families on beaches, um, you know, playing and, um, you know, standing in front of like glitzy cars in, in malls in Hong Kong. And when you look at these pictures, you would think, oh, my God, they have time of their lives. Right. Um, so then when I ask him, why do you post these pictures? And what basically came out of this research was um, this idea of a privacy, meaning a culture of safety. So for them, privacy was not just, you know, having all these different security settings on social media, but um, actually for them, it meant um, posting these pictures to uh, appear normal right, to the families back home and to anybody who could access it. So actually not to um, position themselves as the refugee in all contexts. Um, and that was something that I've seen all over the place when I did research with this with displaced people is people don't want to be seen as the asylum seeker or the refugee or the migrant in all contexts, right? I mean, they are complex human beings living in complex communities. They love, they, 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 they laugh together, they party. They have a right to be happy, right? And so um, that was uh, quite obvious there. Um, but then, of course, I also worked here in Hong Kong, especially also with uh, women and young families. We did a workshop on... On, on internet security and social media safety for families and their yes. children uh -huh. to kind of make them aware that in the context they were in, the pictures could be used against them. And I think that is the other um, side of the research that I've been doing with my colleagues also in Europe and, and all over the place for a long time, this idea that um, you know, migrant populations are increasingly surveyed, and um, they are basically, uh, you know, more and more controlled and disciplined, also um, by uh, you know digital identity measures, but also by biometric borders. And I think we all have experienced these biometric borders. But if you're a privileged person with a privileged passport and the money needed, you can cross these borders. But these populations, um, of course, they um, are uh, very much identified and also in the future they will be identified um, through the biometrics, the metadata they leave um, right. and all these traces they leave um, in the digital world. Um, and so there is a trend and, and we have been writing also with colleagues on that for a while now um, to, to datafy the migrant body. And the question is, what will that mean to future generations, Right when you're always identified by the state, by the European Union, uh, when they take their, your fingerprints um, and the photos you have left online, um, how will that impact your future life? Yeah. Well, I also used to say to students um, in the days when students used Facebook, but it's mm -hmm. the same with other technologies. It's not funny to post pictures of yourself drunk exactly. or high or acting out, because guess what? These will be used against you in job applications, in immigration applications, in mm. political interests, you name it. Just don't do it. And Absolutely. stop putting pictures of children online because Absolutely. these will be abused sexually, right? Yeah. I mean, just don't do these things. But it's, 
you know, the one thing I hope for at an aesthetic level is that people stop taking pictures of the goddamn food they're eating. Because this yeah. one thing I do not enjoy, Saskia, is when I'm and last I I had a very enjoyable dinner last time I was in Hong Kong with uh, you and family, as it were, how uh, your husband. No one was taking photographs of what we were eating. <laughs> but now, yes. <laughs> yeah, right. now it, it's a very different, a very different. It's a different uh, world, isn't it? But um, yeah. another aspect that you mentioned, apart from gender, which of course we we, we may come back to, was COVID. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me COVID nineteen had a, a massive impact on immigration, on refugees, but also on the use of media to stay connected with family and loved other loved ones in other countries. Could you speak a little bit about COVID-19, which you've mentioned already? Yes, yes. And I think that was, I mean, that was a difficult time um, for everybody, but especially for those who are disadvantaged in terms of of income, of class, of, of living in very tiny places, and especially the workers who had to go out and work, the nurses and uh, the transport yes. workers. yes. So, yes, and I think we all learned during that time how to navigate Zoom and, you know, become very tired also at times of this, um, you know, very one-dimensional online world. Um, But especially for migrants and especially the disprivileged ones, um, that was a very difficult time because where, I mean, they could stay in contact with the people, right, and especially with their families back home. The problem is, and and here I actually have always positioned myself as being non-media centric because Mm. there are other aspects in your life that play a role right um such as uh, the expectations of family back home so on the one hand um you know you have uh, these maybe weekly skype zoom whatever calls whatsapp conversations maybe daily with your family on the other hand there's also the expectation tell us are you safe which again you know it's this loop that you post your pictures online to tell your family you are safe these pictures then again can be used by the state against you in your asylum claim or when you cross borders. But there are also expectations in terms of sometimes, you know, monetary expectations. So, you know, that people uh, should send back some money to the families, Um, you know, tiny amounts. But uh, there was a lot of psychological pressure also, you know. Um, And um, so I think that also then multiplied during COVID and where people were stuck in their tiny rooms um, and uh, and then also living with this uncertainty of whether they can stay in a country or not. So for migrants, it was particularly difficult. But actually, it reminds me of another uh, topic uh, beyond COVID, which is the, the the really fast development of these, you know, next generation technologies that we've also seen, you know, in the past couple of years. Um, but also immersive realities that uh, um, I think people had more time to engage with because the computer was available, fast internet, If you, again, if you're in a privileged position. Um, but the uh, the development of VR in particular, right, um, that, that we've seen in recent years, again, going beyond COVID, and um, how VR has been used at least since 2015 and 16 also um, to enter the media stage and um, kind of mediate these stories about difference, about otherness, uh, about migration. And so, you know, all these humanitarian uh, virtual reality films that came out and are available on these goggles that you can, you know, immerse yourself in. um, Exactly. I mean, that is quite an interesting development, too, because, um, on the one hand, um, you see how VR has been used early on in the humanitarian sector to um, kind of trigger and construct like empathy and different emotions in the viewing audience from the global north in particular. And um, and how that again instrumentalizes the uh, the refugee or the migrant as just the person to be looked at and the person that can make you feel you better. Uh, so, you know, all these immersive environments where you can look at refugee camps and you're there in place and time, it it basically um, simulates that that very kind of, um, you know, it simulates uh, intimacy um, and also certain emotions like hope. And so 
especially people again in privileged positions who just look at these pictures it's almost a form of therapy um to uh, to to immerse yourself in these worlds and then come out of it and say see but these people are now in a better place but because this is how these films are constructed (laughs) and prof you've done this yourself multiply as a migrant as all migrants that i know do which is have a dialectic between fitting in with where you now live Mm. uh, which can be linguistic it can be alimentary it can be habilimentary, all sorts of different ways of seeking to fit in, whilst also retaining the parts of you that came from before. One of the things that you confront in your book from last year is when people are not just fitting in, they're also being difficult. I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about this brilliant book, Unruly Speech, that came out in 2023 from Stanford. Thank you, Toby, for asking me about this book. Uh, This is, yeah, that has been a book that has been long in the making. Um, So it's really long-term research across three continents, uh, China, um, Germany, and the United States. And so in this book that's called, as you said, Unruly Speech, um, Displacement and the Politics of Transgression, I look at the nature of transgression by uh, diasporas, um, but also by Uyghurs in China, in Xinjiang, Uyghur Autonomous Region. And I try to understand um, how people become unruly and how they use communication to enact and perform that unruliness and with which consequences. Mm. I find transgression a very, so unruly and transgression I use as synonyms here, but I find it very interesting because when you transgress, you don't just cross a limit, right? You can also create an interaction space. And this interaction space um, tells you something about um, social rules, social regulations and social order and how far you are allowed to go. Um So it's basically also an announcement by the person who transgresses, but also then the backlash um, by the state, by an institution um, can, or also within diasporas, um, can tell you um, where the line is for a social norm or, you know, a a regulation and so on. And so I'm exploring that um, through communicative practices, how Uyghurs transgress. Uh, One is the, the politics of naming and the other one is testimonial. And it was quite interesting because I was in Xinjiang at the time um, that was, it was a time of opening. And so young people in particular in around um, 20, you know, eight, nine, no, I was there earlier, sorry, in Xinjiang, um, around 2006, actually, that was a time when young people thought everything is possible, right? They were really, they really enjoyed working in transnational organizations um, and working with people who were culturally different. They really wanted to travel the world and, and see the world. So it was really exciting for them. And so actually some of the urban younger Uyghurs, they identified or not identified, but they used that term Xinjiang in a sense of we are part of this uh, region, we are part of China and we want to participate. Um, so there was a point of opening, a time of opening that wow. is very different. Um, and you could see then when I went to study the diaspora, how then they actually shifted naming practices um, and uh, engaged in a political advocacy in Washington, but also in Munich, that definitely transgressed the political alliance um, set by the Chinese government. Um, and so it was interesting to see uh, also what's happening in diasporas. Um, how far they are willing to go in their strategy um, and uh, which, you know, media, technology and human communication practices they use to transgress. And surveillance and digital surveillance, I talk about that a lot in the book as well, definitely uh, played a role as well. But if I can add one more thing, um, the book also is actually engaged very critically with the human rights discourse. And Mm -hmm. I just want to... Yes, please explain. Um, because uh, it was, it, I mean, the the advocacy by the Uyghurs um, in 
in Germany and in the US was of course done in the name of human rights, right? It, and that was absolutely important um, to say we are, our cultural identity is, is threatened, uh, women are threatened through forced abortions. And um, so they, they, a lot of it evolved around the topic of human rights. Um, and um, the government also in Germany and the US um, supported that, that type of advocacy. Um, and uh, but at the same time, you could also see the uh, the double standards that Europe and the United States, in particular, use when it comes to human rights. On the one hand, symbolically supporting diasporas, but then at the same time, um, continuing, of course, the economic relationships, um, and um, you know, in that case, also with China um, and other countries, not just China, right? So. I think that was also interesting to see that human rights applies to some people, but not others. Um, and uh, I talk about that again um, also um, in some parts of the book, and it's important to point that out. I, I really appreciate that. I've become more of an advocate for human rights over time, but not the human rights as parlayed by, in inverted commas, the West. Exactly. Yeah. That is absurd and badly used by Russia and China and Britain and the United States, but it does mean something. And it does mean exactly. It's, yes. it's ethnocentric mm -hmm. extrapolations from its own horrors to create an imagined better world are, exactly. are, are absurd. Well, Prof, um, I have two more questions for you, if I may, and then I'd like to invite you to add or subtract anything. <laughs> or add anything to what we've discussed. Does that sound okay? Absolutely, yes. Mm -hmm. yeah. The podcat is currently eating me, so I don't know whether I'll still be alive to finish these questions. <laughs> Darling, that is called an elbow. You've sort of got them. Anyway, the first question, Prof, derives from your saying earlier that you don't always see yourself as a media scholar and... Mm -hmm. You don't like reducing things to the media. I think this is incredibly valuable. When I hear the word mediatization, I run for the hills. When I read anything written by people who think the media explain everything, I stop reading because I've heard it all before and it's bullshit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That said, sometimes people who write about the media aren't actually that aware of other methodologies, other theories, other ways of seeing the world. And mm -hmm. I'm interested in if you could tell us a little bit about your methods, because they, they clearly involve a lot of listening. And in your book that we were just talking about, Unruly Speech, you actually give thanks to your doctoral advisor for <laughs> urging you, I think you say something like, to listen and then listen again. Exactly, yes. So yeah. Could you tell us a wee bit about how you managed to do all these things in these three really very different societies? Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you for the question. I think for raising it because that's an important one, methodology. Um, so I, um, I'm coming from uh, the um, kind of background of culture and communication, of ethnography of communication and um, which I have developed also um, in my own ways in this book uh, but really this idea of uh, working with people on the ground and basically understanding and listening to people on their own terms and I think that was very helpful for me not to impose my preconceived ideas especially in you know topics like this where there is sometimes, of course, you know, the, somebody could argue that, you know, why are you doing this as this, uh, as a white Western woman? You know, why are you interested in diasporas and you're working uh, in contexts um, that, you know, are not necessarily the ones that you that you live in? Um, but I think it's uh, I make this argument also with relation to to my East German past that there are relationships between East Germany and China and and so that actually helped me understanding what was going on in the ground reading the cues in between right the smiles the nonverbal cues not everything is expressed in language right so so this this kind of working from a really um, you know 
ethnographic perspective enabled me to to get really robust materials um, that then I have to sift through, but but really trying to um, also, you know, um, listen to the people on their own terms just to repeat myself and then in a way um, also trying to represent is a terrible word, right? I mean, there's a big debate around that, but in books, in writing, that's what you do. But I try to tell their stories in their own words. Um, and again, that is also a methodological, theoretical move right there. Um, but uh, I also try to complement it, of course, with social media analysis, media scraping, um, uh, to analyze some larger data sets that then complement the interview and observation data. So I try to kind of, you know, um, again, to use the term triangulation to put observation interview data together with document anal analysis and, and social media data to, to have a more robust data set where they say, okay, this is here, here it is. Um, and, um, but also I think just uh, one more comment uh, to make a case for description and descriptive research. Um, because I think sometimes it, what helped me is not to uh, go in there necessarily with the immediate assumption, okay, we have all these power relationships in here. I mean, it was there, right? But at the same time, to really say, what do I see? What do I hear? What do I smell? What What is going on? Mm. Um, and that is difficult because, again, you come from a different linguistic perspective, maybe, and you do cultural translations all the time. Um, but I think it is important to do that step first and then go to critique, at least that for me, for me, that's what I did in the book. Um, and I think that uh, was helpful when I presented the research also and, um, uh, yeah, I reflected and analyzed it over all these years. Yeah. So going back also to my supervisor, Jerry Philipson, um, and, and, and what I've learned uh, from him and others was really that very, very, um, you know, um, strong push to listen and not to impose. And it's difficult. I mean, I think we all struggle with that as researchers, as people in our daily lives, right? Um, because it is so easy to impose our own opinion. Everybody has, a, has an opinion these days obviously on on certain situations um without listening first and, and then commenting and holding back a little bit and observing first and perhaps your experience as a multiple migrant enables that yes i think yes yes you become very good at and i think you're probably in the same position right uh, you become very good of also reading between the lines becoming very tuned to certain conversations and to certain um, ways how people um you know um enact emotions how they talk in daily lives and and also practice empathy that was also something that really um, you know, the, the research type I've done in the past, and especially ethnography, has has really helped me to um, to uh, to have empathy with people, and um, not just in this kind of you know grandiose way of you know like putting myself into the shoes of others. That's not possible. I'm here with Wendy Chun, and I think I would be really re refraining from that. Um, but to also, um, you know, care about other people. And my colleague, Nishan Shah, he has very wonderful projects on the politics of care. And, uh, and I think that was also something that was driving me um, in this research um, to uh, um, work with people who have been treated unfairly by cultural, social and also political systems. Um, and um, and work with them through the stories and sometimes literally just sit with them and listen to them mm -hmm. because that was, I felt, something um, that people really missed in their lives and I miss sometimes too, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. uh, that somebody is just not giving advice all the time but sits there and listens with you and then um, has a dialogue also really in, 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 the, in the sense that we are putting out our positions and listening to each other as human beings again and um, trying to uh, not judge and evaluate immediately when we come into a certain social situation. And so I learned a lot of um, important lessons um, through that research. And um, there's a lot to be done 
It's not perfect, but I'm very, very happy that the book came together as it was and also that I was on sabbatical and could present the stories to other people, especially people who have never heard about the Uyghurs, although they are so highly mediated. Um, so that was really um, a gift for me to be able to do that. I'm very grateful for that. And um, let's see where this takes me in the future. Beautiful. Thank you so much. So, Prof, to conclude, I just wanted to invite you, should you wish to add anything to our discussion? Yes. Um, well, uh, I think a lot of things um, have been said and um, I don't have much to add in a, in a way, I mean, we talked a lot about what preoccupies us and what dynamizes us. And um, so while we are speaking, I mean, just maybe a little observation here. When I look out of my window here in Hong Kong, um, I see uh, cockadoos, you know, cockadoos, the birds, mm -hmm. these yellow cockadoos. And they are just sitting there and they are not, I never thought they're really like uh, like a Hong Kong species. Um, but I actually, and I thought they are like plentiful, like everywhere, because I saw them in Australia a lot as well. And I just learned that they are really an endangered species and that the second highest population of these birds lives in Hong Kong. Uh, they are coming from East Timor or West Timor in Indonesia, and they were brought to Hong Kong through the pet trade. So um, Basically, for me, this is a metaphor to really question and ask and not to take things at face value and kind of evaluate, you know, certain phenomenon right away. Uh, but also, you know, do the research, do some fact checking um, uh, about this. And uh, that was just a reminder, you know, when I was talking to you and seeing these beautiful yeah, birds. And, and birds <laughs> the first and, and will be the last great migrants. Yes, exactly. They really are. If you want to learn about globalization, if you want to learn about climate, our friends in the air will tell us. Absolutely. That's a beautiful ending, yes. So, thank you very much, Professor. It was great to speak to you. Thank you very much, Toby, and all the best to you.